And welcome to the Briar Systems Podcast. We have John Graham, author of Charlotte's War, on the podcast with me today. <clears throat> welcome, John. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for uh, having me on. Absolutely. I'm, I'm grateful that we finally got to connect. You know. Uh, so why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are and, and where you're coming from on all this? Okay. Um, yeah, so I go by Lawrence Graham for my fiction work. I have a body of work mostly on international marketing and international negotiations. Um, I have several books on that topic. Um, I've been uh, teaching for 40 years international business at the University of Southern California, but mostly at UC Irvine. And I've been working with a group on the campus called the Center for Citizen Peacebuilding. Um, but I'm, Charlotte's War is different from any book I've ever, ever done. It's, uh, not, it's, uh, fiction. It's historical fiction and it's about an extended family that's going through three wars, World War II, the Korean War, and mostly Vietnam. And Charlotte is the main character and, uh, She's really fighting against war, uh, trying to bring peace to the country and to her family. And it runs, the story runs from about 1938 to 1972. And embedded in the book is most of the things I've learned during the last 40 years of studying international negotiations. I also spent, uh, some time in the military in the seventies. I was a Navy SEAL. Fortunately, I did not go to war. I sat on the bench, um, and I'm happy about that. But uh, that was during the Vietnam War in the early 70s when I served, and then I was uh, in the reserves for five years after that. And I, uh, so that's kind of my background. I have this weird combination of having been in the military, but also now, I've, most recently, the last 30 years, I've been working for peace. And, uh, so that we don't, uh, have to employ the military as much. Absolutely. So that's got my background. That's a fantastic ambition. So tell me during, um, the seventies, did you get a chance to encounter Richard Marcinko? Richard Marcinko? I don't think so. No. He, uh, that, that was, uh, Dick Marcinko, the founder of Red Team back in the day. I think it nope. was from SEAL Team 2. Okay. I was a West Coaster. Um, and uh, when I was on active duty, it was UDT 11, but SEAL Team 1 is on the West Coast. So I did not run into him. Well, I guess he was a pretty famous one for that era. He was a lieutenant back there in Vietnam. Yeah. Wow. Uh, are you familiar with any of his works? I am not. Okay. Yeah, he's uh he was employed by the United States government uh pretty much to test counterinsurgency tactics against soft and hard targets. So he'd utilize mm-hmm. his SEAL team at home to strategically try to uh get into uh secret locations, soft target locations, government facilities to test whatever kind of security measures they might have in place. I think his uh, most spectacular test was he was able to uh, he stole a nuclear submarine from Groton Subbase. <laughs> okay. Yeah, his team... Uh, Teams swim across the harbor and then they commandeered a nuclear submarine. Really? I've, I've never heard that. Yeah. He continuously embarrassed the United States, uh, military defense league, whatever they had at the time. I think it, uh, they no, no longer had, not the SS. What is, what was the security service that they had during World War II? The OSS? OSS, yeah, and then they eventually became the CIA and 
branched yeah. off to the NSA and probably like 5,000 other three letter <laughs> government departments. Yes. But, uh, yeah, he embarrassed them so bad that they discontinued, discontinued his, uh, red cell activity. But that was also what eventually became SEAL Team 6. Okay. Yeah, so that that was after my time. Wow. Well, thank you for your service. You know, you guys built the foundation for uh, what was to come. So you were one of the original frogmen from the World War II Korean conflicts? No, I... I uh... I was going to be drafted, and so I joined the Navy and, uh, and got a commission, and um, I ended up in underwater demolition teams. Um, I finished BUDS training and was assigned to underwater demolition team 11. Uh, at that point in time in the 1970s, there wasn't a lot going on with UDT. The SEAL team was operating inside Vietnam on a variety of missions. Uh, UDT was involved in things like um, uh, prisoner rescue attempts and things like that. But uh, I was not involved in kinetic warfare. And uh, anyway, that's that's what I did uh, uh, when I was in the Navy. And the war en- basically ended in, in 72. 73, depending on how you count, but that was my experience. I did uh, a couple of, I used to, we, we trained Filipino Navy people in the use of explosives. And I also, one of the strangest experiences I had is we had Vietnamese frogmen come to Subic Bay and I trained them, uh, put together the training program and we trained them. Um, and how to get in and out of a submer- submerged submarine. Oh, wow. And there were about 50 of them. So I was involved in training and public works, demolition works, and things like that, but I wasn't involved in uh, fighting in the war. Well, that's an important piece of legwork, you know, that holds the structure together. Um, it's horrible when it comes to kinetic warfare, but it seems that you've dedicated a lot of your research towards this book for pathways to peace other than That's kinetic right. warfare. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Sure. I guess the key thing to understand, uh, the key difference to understand is the idea of making peace as opposed to building peace. And so one of the things that um, – President Johnson and President Nixon were trying to do in the the war in Vietnam was make peace. And a lot of uh, people died because of that approach. Building peace is uh, is a very different approach. And there there are plenty of examples of trying to make peace. Uh, In fact, a good metaphor is, is a bed, actually. If you think about making a bed, you have to make it every night. And over and over again. Uh, but if you build a bed, uh, that can last a lifetime. And so if you're building peace, that's uh, the kind of thing that can last lifetimes. And uh, so that distinction is important. I mean, we've got all these examples of the use of coercion. Um, Vietnam was one. Certainly. Uh, trade sanctions is another one. We're using trade sanctions right now against a number of countries. And in my peace work, we've done uh, work in Cuba trying to uh, stimulate commerce between the U.S. and Cuba. But uh, that's the worst example of trade sanctions, 60 years, and they haven't worked. They haven't changed the government in Cuba. And we've studied trade sanctions and their efficacy. Uh, the first trade sanctions were actually uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, boycotting trade with England and France because both countries were taking sailors off our ships. And uh, so in 1807, he came up with the idea of uh, 
this trade boycott and it only lasted 15 months because it hurt our own trade. Um, but trade sanctions are an example of coercion, uh, trying to punish the other people and make them do what you want. And basically coercion only works in the short run. Um, I mentioned, mentioned Johnson and Nixon, Nixon already. Afghanistan is another example where we were in, in there 14 years trying to make changes. And finally, thankfully, Biden pulled us out um, because coercion wasn't working there either. Now we have the example of uh, the Russians attacking Ukraine. And uh, that doesn't seem to be working very well. And so hopefully we're going to learn the lesson that these uh, invasions and other aggressive tactics like uh, some of the things that are done covertly uh, and also trade sanctions don't work. Uh, so those are the things that don't work. What does work, and I guess you're, uh, that's the more important topic, um, is building peace. And we've got some really good examples of that, too. I don't know if you want to jump in with a question or before I get going. I, uh, my problem is I spent my career teaching classes that last three hours long. So you got to slow me down and, and butt in once in a while. That's fine. No, I'm just, I'm listening. You know, I have a certain perspective. I joined the Marine Corps when I was much younger and, overwhelming astounding force was drilled into us that that was the way to solve all of our problems and found out the hard way in civilian life that that's not always <laughs> that's definitely not the best tactic in in all around you know politics or communication in general yeah well, one of the more interesting venues for teaching international negotiation was the marine corps at camp pendleton we did that a couple of years ago, and we uh, taught the Marines um, some of the principles of negotiation to try to apply it in uh, in Afghanistan at the time. And uh, so they were interested in that topic, too, and we were proud to be trying to give them some alternatives. Well, um, well Hearts and Minds was a tactic talked about consistently. Everywhere from 2003 up until 2014. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, you would just hear the micro horror stories of people's perspectives, sacrificing their potential freedom, life, liberty, as well as being exposed to, you know, morbid situations in the name of some kind of obscure ideology that we were trying to coerce an entire nation who uh, just definitely didn't want it. So, Well, there's a, a, one of the most powerful anti-war movies I've seen was one that was it's probably six or seven years ago called uh, To Hell and Back. And it's a documentary. Um, and they have some footage where an American colonel is talking to an Afghan village chief. And the American colonel is saying through translation, we're here to help you. What can we do? And the chief says, the main thing you can do to help us is leave. And so the colonel again said, well, I, I can't do that. Our job is to help you against the Taliban. And the chief said, well, if you're really interested in helping us, you, you need to leave. And, you know, it's just a was a strange conversation. And fortunately, we did ev eventually leave. But a lot of people suffered uh, in the process. If I think about trying to build peace, the, there's an excellent book that uh, I'll describe. It's by Steven Pinker. He's at Harvard, and he wrote a book called uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And in that book, he makes the case empirically. And uh, so there are going to be a lot of people saying, oh, this can't be right. But actually, the world is the most peaceful it's ever been. And, you know, you can't see that on the news. 
uh, or read it in the newspaper, but Pinker makes a very important point that it's, you have to follow the trend lines, not the headlines. And so if you look at the numbers, um, you know, obviously all these gun deaths, uh, are a horrible thing, but it's been worse than the United States at different times. For example, in 1972, the gun deaths per capita were higher than they are now. Um, I can't speak for, uh, 2022 yet because we don't have the data, but anyway, Pinker makes the point that the world is safe and he, ex and he gives four reasons why that's so. One is rule of law. People are paying uh, attention to laws. I mean, don't kill other people. Uh, rule of reason. So the Japanese wouldn't have attacked the United States if they understood uh, the industrial might of the United States. Now everybody can see what everybody has, you know, whether that involves balloons flying over or what. But um, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable to start a war anymore. Um, the third reason is he found that when women are higher up in government, there tends to be uh, less violence, which is an interesting one. And that's a, a topic all by itself. But the fourth reason I really like, and that's uh, he said that trade causes peace. And so my career has been built around international marketing and international trade. And uh, it, it ends up that that's a key to building long term peace. And trade works in three ways. Um, one is the people who are involved in the commerce talk to each other. People travel to other countries to sell things or buy things. And so they get to learn about one another's culture and interests. And so that interaction is important. The second reason trade works is because countries become interdependent. And for the greatest example right now is China. I, China and the United States and Taiwan are so tightly connected commercially, there's never going to be a war. There's, I'm going to say it again. There's never going to be a war between the United States and China because nobody can afford that war. If we went to war, if we even had a substantial dust up and we stopped trading with China completely, um, there'd be chaos in China within six months. So that war is, is never going to happen despite what the politicians and the headlines say. Yeah. The trade is too important. There was a conversation so with, with General McMasters where he talked about the Clinton administration opening up trade to the CCP. Um, everything from the deep water port to helping them with their space program to outsourcing industrial textile mills. And it was once we got China addicted to capitalism, there would be no going back. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, with any of the language from the Clinton administration back in 95, 94. Yeah, I, I really wasn't a pay, paying attention then, but I have been in recent years. We uh, publish at the university something called the U.S.-China Barometer, and we compare uh, the two countries on about 30 different metrics, and we're looking at the trend lines, and uh, trade is still powerful between the two countries. Absolutely. And it seems like yeah. one of their biggest, uh, one of the things that agitates them the most is actually the American companies consistently attempting to take advantage of their, uh, what do they call that, evolving status, emerging status as a superpower. Yes. And it's hard to begrudge them for that. Um, one of the things, one of the miracles of China is they brought, you know, the numbers vary, but they brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And, you know, they still call themselves communists, but communism is pretty hard to see if you go to Shanghai. Um, yeah, they have communists so, for $400,000. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And so... 
that that set the second reason that trade interaction builds us interdependence. The third reason is maybe the most important. Trade brings creativity and invention. So you have these old examples like, uh, you know, gunpowder. Well, the Chinese invented it. The Europeans have used it more. Uh, that's maybe a bad example, but the Chinese also invented spaghetti. Um, so, and the, and the compass and Westerners have borrowed that. And so we have this history. Countries have a history of trading ideas. Some people call it stealing ideas. But one of the things we see in our data with respect to China is the number of U.S. patents granted to teams that include Chinese citizens and American citizens is uh, just ballooning. And that's true now. We had an article in the Harvard Business Review in 2019, which described this uh, collaboration in invention between the U.S. and China and how it was growing. And uh, so that's the third reason that trade works so well and it's so important. You have the inter interpersonal interaction. You have um, the interdependence that's involved that keeps the peace. But you have the creativity or the invention. Um, and the best example of that is what we're talking to each other on right now. I don't know if you have an Apple phone. But, uh, of course, Foxconn is a company owned by a group in Taiwan, and they uh, construct the Apple phone um, from parts from all over the world, including the United States. And so these phones um, are developed in collaboration with many countries, including China, and uh, they've made the manufacturing very efficient. So we have to be happy about that. And the while trade causes peace, politicians cause war. Right. And I'm really unhappy with Biden now because he seems to have not tried to clean up the U.S.-China mess that uh, uh, Trump made of things. For example, we've monitored the World Trade Organization over time and the number of conflicts resolved between the U.S. and China. And that international institution, which promotes trade um, was doing a very good job but uh, Trump pulled us out of that uh, out, of, out of the WTO and so there hasn't that way of resolving uh, trade friction uh, was taken away and it really hasn't been put back together by Biden so I'm cranky about that I like what he did in Afghanistan I'm cranky with the way he also, his administration also hasn't renewed relations with Cuba in the way Obama was going, in the direction Obama was going. So the politicians throughout history have caused wars, um, and uh, uh, people, uh, citizens, mostly through trade, have been causing peace. Well, I've always been a libertarian at heart, so... I definitely believe in the free market can consistently and intelligently work out problems. Politicians repeatedly prove that they're incapable of, of fixing. Yeah. Um, it's just a little difficult with the way that these politicians in other countries seem to have the upper hand of negotiations. So it's not, you know, business to business or B2B. It's politician to business, and when the government owns the private entities of companies, it's it be, could potentially be a dangerous prospect where they wear the face mask of capitalistic attention, and in the end, they just are trying to centralize everything and make a mess of everything. And at what yeah. point are we propping up totalitarianism? And at what point are we actually participating in free trade or becoming taken advantage of by potentially having goodwill. Now, I'm not saying that our uh, our free market in America with the major corporations or anything, uh, including innocent, <laughs> I'm not. I'm definitely not 
backing them up because they just seem to have free reign of everything in the name of capitalism, which is repeatedly just damaging our way of life. Uh, everything from middlemen insurance companies, instead of being able to socialize the medicine properly and having the money go where it's supposed to go and the government overseeing it to weed out corruption. It's, uh, it's just become a, a massive mess. You know, why can't yeah. we do anything altruistic and have it work out to that effect? Well, I guess the way I, I say the same thing you said is, you know, the Constitution says that the government, the job of Congress and the government is to uh, rein in industry. But the problem is American industry, and you mentioned some of the main types, are controlling the government. And that's because there's so much money flowing through the polit political system. It's just frightening how much money is flowing to into each congressional campaign. And I think there's a way to stop that. Uh, there doesn't seem to – obviously, those that are in government aren't interested in changing the system. But citizens can take action by simply asking every chance they get if their representative uh, makes decisions based on donations. The question is, do donations influence your voting? Mm. And no politician will say yes. They will all lie about it. And Washington, D.C. is just populated by liars, that fundamental lie. And, of course, there are a lot worse lies, but, you know, that's driving um, the corruption in the government where we people aren't being represented. The companies and the rich people are being represented. Right. represented. And a lot of these companies, American companies, we're very eager to do business with China because of their lax labor laws, uh, being able to take advantage of a poor emerging economy. And yes, it did pull people out of poverty, but it was a sped up form of just slave labor for a decade. And one of the concerns yeah. that I have long term is, let's say, one of these kids in a sweatshop making Nike shoes or in Foxconn with the nets around it. You know, he's got whips on it, whip lacerations on his hands. Well, where's that boy going to be in 20 to 30 years? He could be the president of China. And who is he going to blame? Is he going to blame his own people capitalizing on his pain and suffering? And, you know, maybe he might remain grateful in his heart that, you know, he had to struggle to come up and he got where he was directly because of the pressure. But long term, he's going to blame the American corporations for, you know, taking advantage of uh, unbelievable suffering at the hands of of corporate in the name of capitalism uh, because they can't do it over here in America. And everybody turns a blind eye and everybody they scream about, you know, self-liberty and being able to own one's own wealth and own the labor of oneself and wind up turning a blind eye to any suffering outside of our echo chamber, which seems to be very toxic right now. Yeah. Well, of course, of course that's true. I mean, the companies have done really nasty things in, in other countries, they've, but they've also done a lot of good. I, uh, I took groups of uh, MBA students over the years to China uh, for about, six or eight years in a row. And one of the worst things I ever saw in any factory was this Chinese worker was using a metal lathe. And um, and uh, as he was using it, he was making, working on machine tools. He was machining something. Um, little flecks of metal were flying off of it and hitting him on the forehead. And he was wearing no safety goggles. You know, it was just frightening to see this. Of course, this is 20 years ago. This was in the 90s. And presumably, there uh, there have been a lot of safety things. At, at UCI, 
we have some of the cleanest laboratory at the University of California, Irvine, where I am now, we have one of the cleanest um, laboratories in the country when it comes and uh, some of the safest. And the Chinese are very interested in our technology for running clean and safe laboratories. And so that technology transfer is happening. Um, so we can be very helpful. Uh, and the companies can be very helpful, but you're right. There's a lot of, um, a lot of collusion between groups in the countries and, uh, U.S. companies. The other thing that's nice about the United States is we have protest groups that protest this, uh, and makes, and gets some traction, uh, against, uh, exploitation of labor in other countries. And that's the good thing about the United States. One of the good things. There are many good things, but there are many things that need to be changed. Of course. Well, I'm sure a lot of the, uh, even though it is exploitative, exploitative in in nature, it's still an opportunity that wasn't, wouldn't be there if not for the capitalistic nature. Uh, So any kind of, Industrial revolution, emerging markets usually will look not too appealing to somebody in the quote-unquote civilized world. But doing business with people also of that mindset will potentially imprint on you. So, you know, if you and I were doing business repeatedly and you had a certain method of which you did business, you know, and if it looked significantly more profitable to me and in my country it's illegal uh, i would yearn to be able to have that kind of authoritarian decision making over my network of industry or my network of of capitalistic marketing so be it you know yeah the the interesting thing about the U.S. is it's really the Center for Creativity because of we have freedom to put new ideas on the table. And in other countries, the ones that are run by autocrats, they don't have that same, the people don't have that same freedom. Um, and so they're always going to fall behind uh, be, because of the great creativity we have here. Um Hopefully, as long as we let that happen. Right. I mean, right now the tech market is is a nightmare in America. Um, where I, I don't know if you're familiar, they're trying to uh, quantify software as a type of security measure because people are rapidly investing in new cryptography, digital asset ownership, which is basically just you know wrapping computer programming in cryptography that's unbreakable with a ledger system to prove ownership. And uh, it's very similar to what they do on the stock market, just with probably a hundred times more bureaucracy and books and extra employees. A computer program can do that in a matter of seconds, which is transfer of wealth settlement or payment settlements like PayPal or Venmo or, it just completely eliminates all of the bureaucracy that's out there. And it's terrifying to politicians because those companies are cutting them checks, <laughs> lobbying, so to speak. And uh, a computer can basically take their jobs away from them, similar to AI. But I knew one woman who was working for IBM in China uh, for 10 years, and then they became Lenovo. And then she transferred over to Google China and they were working on their AI programming over in China. And that seemed a little scary um, because of their tendency to try to covet any technology that's being developed in their country. But um, long story short, I think that technology could potentially change the world and cut through all these politics to create a free capitalistic market of transparency without any of the injected politics that seems to make it a toxic market itself. 
Yeah. Well, I think uh, trade can create uh, problems, of course, and particularly uh, trade in weapons or if you want to talk about fossil fuels, we're getting pretty far away from things, or at least I'm taking things pretty far away. But uh, ultimately, if people can work together, they don't need to fight. I mean, we have uh, fight over things as long as we're inventing new things that help mankind. And uh, so we need to keep doing that. Uh, government does have a role, uh, but it hasn't it hasn't been working. Like I said, the companies have been really controlling the government in this country, and that, that's got to change. Yeah, it definitely would be better for future generations. <clears throat> Excuse me. The experiment that we have here, uh, it's been quoted as just a, an experiment of mankind to self-govern. Seems to be getting rapidly off track, but free trade definitely eases tensions and helps create better communication, takes advantage of one's own selfishness. And as long as everybody's eating and they're happy and fat, <laughs> There, yeah. Like you said, there's very little conflict. Well, I think the big problem in the United States right now, the underlying problem that's causing so much friction is uh, baby boomers like me are trying to retire. And there just aren't enough. Uh, you can look at the demographics. This comes out. All this is covered in my textbook on international marketing and some of my other work multi-generational families but the demographics are really bad right now the percentage of um, elders 65 and older in the country is growing at its fastest rate in history and we don't have enough young people in this country to take care of guys like me so we we're doing this silly stuff uh, you know being hawkish about immigration when we need immigration uh, to really help out. And I go back to the founding fathers and the Declaration of Independence, two of the criticisms of King George were um, that uh, the British were stopping free trade and they were also uh, controlling immigration to the colonies. And the colonists complained about both things. And that also takes me to the Declaration of Independence that Ho Chi Minh um, delivered to his people right after World War II. Uh, it was an, uh, the purpose of that, and this is covered in Charlotte's War, but the purpose of that was to, to be free of French uh, colonization and colonial control. And it, I don't know, it took 45 to 75, so what's that, 30 years to win back control of their country from um, – the colonists and and then from us our uh, misplaced aggression in Vietnam, but uh, their the Declaration of Independence from 1945 is very similar. The wording is almost identical, and the whole the whole decla their Declaration of Independence is included in Charlotte's War. So if you, you can read it or you can just Google it. And it's kind of an amazing document. It never mentions the word communism. And it uh, said that it criticized the French because the French were controlling the Vietnamese entrepreneurs. Uh, so it's a very interesting document. Um, one you wouldn't expect based on what most of the news was saying about all the bad people in Vietnam. Anyway, that's an, another long story, too. Well, I, we have time. If you got time, I got time. <laughs> well, that's that's. Let me say that's about a four hundred page story, which is <laughs> what, what uh, Charlotte's War is about, um, and uh, the history of the Vietnam War. And you know, in order to understand what happened there, you have to go back to the folklore um, that Ho Chi Minh heard when he was a, a kid. Uh, basically about the Chinese invaders and Vietnam has a whole history of invasion from China 
that uh, has made them uh, that uh, dominates their history. And of course, then we ended up basically invading, which was a big mistake. It's hard. It's hard to imagine what the country would have been like had Kennedy not been assassinated. Kennedy was kind of leaking violence um, and coercion into Vietnam when he was in office. But overall, he was interested in uh, international policy of engagement, things like the Peace Corps and uh, having um, ambassadors that spoke the foreign languages where they were serving. And uh, he was interested in trade. Uh, as building peace, that those are his main interests. And he got caught up in this fear of communism, which in retrospect, uh, was, uh, a disaster. But, uh, when, after he died, uh, after he was assassinated, um, of course, uh, Johnson just poured troops into the battle. And Nixon started pulling him out, but he was pulling him out while he was still shooting and dropping bombs and expanding the war into uh, Cambodia and Laos. And so Nixon, in one respect, brought the peace by pulling troops out, but he just made a bloody mess. Uh, that's why I have a lot of respect for Biden. He had uh, the courage to say enough. And... Um, uh, pulling out of Afghanistan, finally. Yeah, it's um, that was an emotional situation. I know for the for different parties and religious political parties as well, because they felt as if they could potentially make that a Christian nation at some point. You're talking about Afghanistan. Yeah, Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, the same with with Iraq, uh, and there were some people from New York. Who, I think there were Hasidic Jewish folk who still had deeds to prop business and industrial properties in Iraq. So after we invaded, they pulled out their deeds and they said, "We we own this property, you know, before the regimes took over, and we'd like it back." And I, yeah. I think they fought it in court for a while, and then they got those properties back, which is just kind of an interesting story to me. But what do you think uh, were the worst aspects of Afghanistan and the biggest reason that we should not occupy or continuously coerce that population? Uh, in the 21st century, invasions don't work. Um because it's too easy to defend a country. And so, to, you know, there's something morally wrong with coercing anyone. But uh, the practicality is it just doesn't work to invade another country. You know, you can look at other examples. We already mentioned Russia and Ukraine, but Iraq invaded Iran in the 80s. That did not work. And there's just a whole history. For me, the most interesting thing about the 80s is the end of the Cold War really got going right at the end of the 80s. And a lot of people attribute Ronald Reagan tear down that wall kind of uh, military buildup approach that caused the end of the Cold War. And, uh, yeah, maybe that had something to do with it. But the main thing that caused the end of the Cold War was Japan was taking over the world economically because they were uh, creating more useful technology and were involved in trade all over the world, improving lives all over the world. And the United States and the Soviet Union both looked at Japan and went, well, maybe there's another way to compete besides building nuclear weapons. Um, so I really give the Japanese a lot of credit for ending uh, uh, the Cold War, um, setting a better example, uh, for, uh, both countries. We've kind of lost 
the bubble on that now where we seem to be competing again uh, militarily. Uh, what's most frightening to me in 1962, when I was a kid, my mother stocked a bomb shelter. Um, and we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area and she stocked a, our basement with food in case the Cuban Missile Crisis went nuclear. Uh, we also had to, we did duck and cover drills in our schools because we were afraid of nuclear war over the Cuban missiles. And, you know, now, uh, God knows what is going through Putin's mind. And, uh, I assume as people won't let him push a button, um, because that, that would be the end of their family's lives too. But it's frightening again. And I was looking at the numbers of nuclear warheads. I mean, everybody's worried about China attacking the United States or even, um, North Korea. And, if you look at the numbers, those fears make no sense at all. Um, the number of warheads that the uh, Russians have is still over 5,000. And uh, we have over 5,000 warheads. If you look at the best, the different counts, China has about 290. So it's, you know, it's not even close. It's not even close. So, uh, you know, worrying about war with China makes no sense. You, I think it is reasonable to worry about nuclear weapons being used in this uh, Russian-Ukraine thing uh, if uh, Putin gets really desperate. Well, but, the, uh, the old KGB clandestine handbook that they had was uh, pretty amazing. I watched plenty of documentaries on that on PBS when I was younger. All around the collapse of the Soviet Union and master spies divulging uh, tactics that they chose. And one completely frightening plan that the Soviet Union had back in the 80s was a Volkswagen bug was outfitted with a chemical gas. And (laughs) it would... uh, drive around deploying this gas and they said it could drive around New York City twice and all the way down to DC before people realized that the chemical warfare was deployed. So it would emit the gas from the tailpipe exhaust of the Volkswagen bug. Oh God. Yeah. I, that's that's another one I haven't heard. I will <laughs> say in in the preface of Charlotte's War um, I report on a trip I took to Moscow in 1989, um, and I was studying – before I went, by the way, I was at USC at the time. I, I got visited by two FBI agents, uh, which made the whole story kind of more interesting. But um, I went there to train Soviet managers how to negotiate with Americans and Japanese. Wow, and I that's cool. I did two different programs. Um, with about, I don't know, 30 Russian managers. And we videotaped and had them fill out questionnaires, and we produced some papers describing how Soviets slash Russians negotiate. And we still uh, use those data, and that material is still available to this day. But we did the main two main programs, and then I was asked by – uh, one of the participants, if I would do just a short program for an hour or so at his plant, and I said, sure, uh, what kind of things do you make at your uh, company? And he said, well, we're a weapons laboratory. So that made it even more interesting. And so as we're driving out to this plant on the out, this weapons laboratory, out uh, on the outskirts of Moscow, I said, well, what do you, you know, what, why would you be negotiating with Japanese and Americans about products? And he said, what we're thinking we can do is we can sell, we have these huge um, rocket uh, truck bases that we could sell around the world uh, and people and people in other countries could put their cranes on um, these huge uh, trucks. So that was one thing. The other thing they were talking about was using their missiles 
it doing low atmosphere research, uh, things like the ozone layer research, that was an issue back in the 80s. And so they thought they could sell those in Japan, the United States, and around the world as well. <clears throat> so I went to this weapons laboratory and I gave them a presentation. Uh, uh, this is 1989 when uh, the Soviet Union was coming to a close, basically. Gorbachev was just uh, taking over. But it was very interesting. I walked through their lab and they weren't supposed to have computers from the West. They had computers from everywhere. Apples, IBMs. Um, uh, they had uh, computers from Taiwan. It was just a very interesting visit. Uh, anyway, that was an interesting trip in 89. I didn't hear the one about the Volkswagen bug and trying to kill people. The guys I were, I was talking to, including KGB representatives, um, we're talking about uh, increasing trade, and so I was happy to help them do that. Well, that's a fantastic conversation as opposed to, you know, the uh, guerrilla warfare. <laughs> but, well, yeah, and well, uh, another interesting thing about the Vietnam War is at one point in time, the Prime Minister, Lexi Kosygin, offered to mediate between Vietnam and the United States. Of course, the United States didn't take that seriously, but that offer was made and not accepted. So, anyway, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, creepy stuff, um, like making weapons of mass destruction, but other things where uh, people were trying to prevent violence. And trying to right. reduce violence, even even the Soviets. The, so I work in an industrial field of aerospace, and I can say that the arms race mixed with the space race was one of the most scientifically advanced time for the United States. We took everything from, you know, uh, we brought everything down to micro macro levels uh, they were able to make tubular injections a fraction of the size more durable experimental metals um, metallurgy that seems to be a forgotten trade these days in America with the outsourcing of so many of these companies through trade you know not that it's a horrible situation but even the Clinton administration helped outfit China with launching satellite systems. Um, sure. U- utilizing some of our rockets. And it's yeah. not their fault that they wound up weaponizing it, you know, to have ICBM delivery capabilities when Russia wouldn't help them with that capability. Yeah. So that hopefully solidified our commerce for the next 30 years because we're still heavily invested in trade with China. Yeah. So it yeah. took it took a fantastic effort on the part of that administration and we were reaping the benefits of that for a long time. But these days it seems like our the political agenda is to take apart entrepreneurs the same way that the French were doing it to Vietnam. So if yeah. you're inventing something, it goes to one of these big eight companies and they don't even have to buy it from the entrepreneur. They could just take it through their lobbying efforts and them owning the judicial system. And it's, uh, it's becoming real toxic. So trade is fantastic, but with these people at the helm, I don't put it past them pushing a button at some point in time to erase the abuses that they've inflicted on the tax system and the inflationary uh, monetary system that's been created from these bureaucrats and politicians without necessarily having a fantastic beneficial reason, just inflating it out of greed. Well, maybe we should end the story with a little good news. 
Um, I was talking about the salience of demographics and baby boomers, and we're putting pressure on on all American systems right now. The healthcare system is really having a difficult time. The pension systems are failing, um, and it, it, and the growth in the percentage of elderly is going to continue very steeply until about 2030. So things are actually going to get worse in this country. Um, the frictions between all kinds of people are made worse when there aren't enough resources to go around. Uh, and that's the shape we're in. But by 2030, things will start to look better again. And if we can just get through, you know, the rest of this decade and make some changes that, uh, are helpful to the healthcare system in particular, then things will start to look better. I unfortunately probably won't make it myself through the decade, but uh, young people will, and uh, hopefully we'll still have this creative spirit and uh, freedom to create things and deliver new ideas, and uh, things will look good. Between then and now, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's difficult to imagine what tomorrow will bring, but peace is priceless. You know, John, thank you very very much for your perspective, and <clears throat> I wish you luck on the book, and um, I hope people will be able to imprint from your book paths to peace and utilize them for the future, because yeah, this kind of conflict doesn't benefit anybody. And I, I don't know if it's politicians that are creating this animosity between nation states or if it's just a direct profit motive. And everybody seems to have the same consensus of this kinetic warfare occurring through proxy as just being a profit motive. Yeah. Well, let's hope it's not, not profits, but... Yeah, so anyway, I appreciate talking with you, Steve. Um, we can do this again. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and th there's, of course, more to talk about. I I mentioned the demographics, and that's kind of a – we have the third edition of our book on multigenerational living coming out. And one of the main solutions is going to be the extended family uh, taking care of itself because um, the government is running out of gas. At the moment. So, but anyway, that's another topic. Well, you know, I, I'm glad that you brought it up. What, what would keep the extended family, um, as a unit? Because it seems well, like the government's hell bent on separating family units. I don't know if it's a profit, profit motive or what, but. No, no I think part of the, well, like I said, this is a whole, book topic, but um, we've kind of lost human beings have always uh, thrived in extended family situations and up until the last 50 years. And we kind of got away from it in the last 50 years in the United States and, and uh, Europe. But you can see now multi-generational living growing steadily uh, for the, uh, in this century in the United States. And it just makes a lot of sense, uh, for, for families to take care of one another. And, uh, so I, that, that is happening, but we should encourage that. For example, one of the ways that the government, one of the, I'll just give one example. The government discourages it is a lot of the, um, Laws controlling what can be built, the zoning laws, have a, uh, if you look at them, it looks like your Grand Prix is more important than your grandmother. Uh, they're designed with restrictions on parking, and so people can't add a granny flat, for example, or an ADU, uh, an accessory dwelling unit, uh, because of restrictions of zoning and things like that. And we, those are opening up, but not fast enough. But 
another topic for another day. And the, the title of the book, the third edition, the current edition is, uh, well, my book website is, uh, grahamsbooks.com. And on that website, uh, there are my negotiation books, but also the multi-generational book. There's a book on drugs and there's also some kids books. So I've been working hard uh, writing books the last decade or so. And, uh, but, uh, Charlotte's War is the first one you run into. And that's really the most important one right now. Absolutely. All right, John. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And you're welcome to come on anytime, you know, when you, you launch that other book. Um, just shoot me an email or you have my phone number. You can call me and we'll set up a, an appointment to do another podcast. Thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, John. And guys, okay. 